As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On today's episode, we will be scoring out director Akira Kurosawa. Then we'll be trying three whiskeys from the World Whiskey Society. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome into the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we're coming at you with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode. Brad, the bonus episodes, I feel like they carry a significance that they didn't used to because there's there's, a, there's fewer there's a of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're making people wait for it. You know, we're taking the like Christopher Nolan eventizing your movie approach. You only get one every so many years. <laughs> You still get a regular episode every week, but yeah. but if the bonus episodes are your thing, you got to wait like three or four weeks now. <laughs> and because of that, we have been making uh, a very special whiskey producer wait for a little while here. You know, not to jump ahead to the whiskey segment here, Brad, but we've got three whiskeys on the docket for today from the World Whiskey Society, which is a sorcerer. Is that a word I can use? Of whiskeys that, you know, basically is like a private label that they pick these super premium whiskeys. They put them in ultra premium packaging and they sell them off for a pretty penny. It's a really cool like I love what the work they're doing. I think that when you really want to buy someone a whiskey as a gift, like there's oh, that's a nice bottle of whiskey. And then there's like this is the way. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The way to go. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. hundred percent. And so they were super generous with us because we asked for a sample of one of their whiskeys that had won gold at San Francisco this year. And instead of that, they sent us four or five full bottles of whiskey, including ones that were like they didn't get medals at San Francisco. They were just like, hey, we have these other releases. Here you go. And so they sent us these like $150 bottles of whiskey. Brad, we, we mm-hmm. probably have like $600 worth of product from them sitting on our shelves right now. And so we're, yeah. we're well, go ahead. Sorry. To be cl- to be clear, they sent Bob six hundred dollars worth of whiskey, <laughs> and he gave me two ounce samples yeah. of each. I gave you approximately twelve dollars of whiskey. Yes. Yep. So just to be clear here, uh, what's with, with, with what's going on? Yeah, that's fair. Although I always, there always <laughs> is the caveat that like if you really like something, I will give you that bottle. <laughs> two more ounces. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, we're excited to try those three whiskeys from the World Whiskey Society. But before we get there, we have to talk about Akira Kurosawa because five weeks of films was not enough, Brad. It sure wasn't, Bob. I will say our journey with Kurosawa was a fascinating one because it started off in a not great place, Bob. 
I am still surprised that like of all the movies that didn't work for you, that Rashomon didn't work <laughs> to the extent that it didn't work. Like it really didn't work. I I think at this point there's one movie a season that that I good fellas you on. Yeah. At least there's at least <laughs> one. And it's always one yes. that like I kind of look past. It's not even that I'm like, "Oh, I can't wait for you to watch this." It's like, "Oh yeah, I I'm I'm assuming that at the at the worst Brad will think this is a seven and a half, right? And then we go in mm-hmm. and you're like, this sucked. <laughs> and I don't know. I'm I'm so blindsided in the recording process that I don't know what to do from there. <laughs> it's it, There's some of my favorite episodes, <laughs> I if bet I'm they being are. honest. <laughs> People who really like to listen to me stammer for an hour yeah, are subscribed yeah, to those episodes. Man, it's just fun to keep you on your toes. All right, Brad, we're going to talk about Kurosawa by reviewing his abilities based on the five movies of his that we watched for this season. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we score out a director based on five categories that we've established uh, in a prior bonus episode that I think we called What Makes a Good Director. So if you'd like to hear our rationale behind these five categories, you can go find that episode. But Brad, can you just uh, walk us through the categories and what they mean? Yeah, so performances, how does Kurosawa direct actors? Cinematography, how, what do you see on screen? Is it beautiful? Is it not? Editing, is the music and the uh, movement of scene to scene beautiful and attractive and good, or is it bad? Uh, cohesion, how does the movie work within itself? Does it make sense? Are there logical gaps that are missing? And also, like, artistically, is is there cohesion within the film, or does it feel like two or three different people made it? And then finally, uniqueness. You know, with these five films, how does Kurosawa stand out from his peers? And this will be really easy with the extensive Japanese filmography that we have watched. <laughs> we'll know exactly who and how to compare him. I was going to say, do we compare him to his peers or do we compare him to every other director we've done on the podcast so far? Because if it's the latter, I think it's kind of an automatic 10, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's just his peers... It's pretty easy to say, I don't know, <laughs> one, ten, sure, whatever you say, Bob. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know, we'll get there when we get there. I do like the option where your answer is whatever you say, Bob. Those are you. Yeah. Those are the, my favorite episodes. <laughs> I know they are. <laughs> All right. Let's dive in with performances, Brad. If I had to peg one that I think that you might penalize Kurosawa for, it would be this one. So I'd kind of like to hear you go first on this. What would you give him on a 10-point scale for his performances? Oh, man. I think that overall, his performances are... It's such a, it's such a wild swing. Mm-hmm. Because high and low, I really like Tashira Mifune. Uh, I think all the supporting actors there are pretty solid. There's a little bit of overacting from the chauffeur. But overall, everybody is turns in a really solid, you know, B plus kind of performance. Ikiru has a top 10 performance all time. Mm. Rashomon, Ron, and even Seven Samurai to a point, although I liked Seven Samurai a, a lot, had just asininely ridiculous performances. <laughs> And so I just, uh, man, it's hard. I feel like he is a a really solid director of actors, but it's kind of peaks and valleys for me. Yeah. 
So I think I will give him. I think I'm leaning towards like a seven, seven and a half, but I'm going to give him an eight because of Takashi Shimura in Akiru. I'm also going to give him an eight here, Brad. And I think part of it is recognizing my own kind of cultural distance from, you know, being in Japan. And especially, you know, we talked in the first couple episodes, I think maybe Rashomon, about the influence of kind of like kabuki theater on these films that are set in more historical times. Like, it's almost as if the acting styles reflected the kind of acting that someone would see if they lived at the time the movie was made. And so I kind of I don't want to give him a pass for that. But I also think that you and I just kind of have to step back a little bit and say, oh, the Mm -hmm. performances that worked for us are the ones that are that most closely resemble Western filmmaking where, you know, where realism is emphasized. So, like, yeah, I'm with you in that a lot of the performances in those other films didn't work as well for me. But I think they still were what he was going for. And he showed us enough in the more modern set films that you kind of do give him a pass a little bit. So, I'm yeah, I'm going to stick at an eight. And that takes us to cinematography, where I think I can't really find a reason to not give him a 10. From film to film, I don't want to say that his cinematography style changes, but like Rashomon, I was so impressed at how many kind of like dolly shots and wonders he was able to get even within like those cramped confined spaces in a forest seven samurai. He did such a great job at setting up the geography of that village. Ron would just these beautiful, colorful vistas. And like, you know, when they burn the castle, it's just like, could you have a better backdrop for a shot? And then the black and white cinematography of both Ikiru and high and low, where we get, Kurosawa in really, really widescreen. I think you made a comment last week with High and Low, Brad, about the blocking of the performances in High and Low. Two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. I just think that it's incredible. I'm going to give him a 10 there. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you. I'm going to give him a nine and a half here. I will say anytime we see a, a massive burning building on screen... I always compare it to Gone with the Wind. Hmm. Yeah. And that is the best burning building <laughs> shot in the history of cinema. We really do need to do like a top five arson episodes. You know? <laughs> that's, huh? that's actually perfect. <laughs> How pretty was your arson? Was it aesthetically pleasing enough? <laughs> oh, man. Now you've got me. My brain's going down <laughs> a wide rabbit hole. All right, so you're doing nine and a half on cinematography? Yeah, nine and a half on cinematography. I think when it comes to editing, I I think I'm going to give him a higher score on editing than I will on cohesion. I think that, well, I don't know. His movies are too long. Yeah, I'm in the opposite. I think they're too long, but he builds really believable worlds. And I always think of cohesion as like the world building. Does this thing hold together? So. If it's me, you know, I'm personally going to give him a lower editing score than I will cohesion. Yeah, I think the reason I was thinking cohesion at first was that at least two, maybe three of his films. I remember feeling like they just completely turned into a different movie with like an hour left. And I didn't mind that, but it definitely was like a tonal shift and a artistic shift Mm -hmm. that, you know, just kind of felt weird. And I, I love Akira, 10 out of 10, but the last hour was a huge shift. For and sure. There, there wasn't quite as much cohesion. Mm. 
Does that make sense? It does. So what would you give him on both of those categories? Oh, man. I think I will give him... You're right. His world building is just incredible. I'll give him an eight and a half on editing and a nine on cohesion. Oh, wow. You you are being very generous to him tonight in a way that I wasn't quite expecting. And I think I'll balance you out a little bit by just giving him a seven and a half on editing. And that is with the caveat that I have been praising the actual like editing techniques in his movies for five weeks straight. It's like they're high and low is 30 years ahead of its time in terms of the way it's cut. But every single one of these movies, except for Rashomon to me, I thought Rashomon was, uh, I gave that a 10 out of 10, and it's only an hour and a half long. I thought that all these movies were at least 20 minutes too long. And Mm -hmm. so when that is like the predominant theme, I'm giving him a seven and a half there. I'm also going to give him a nine on cohesion uh, because I, I just think that his world building is second to none, even in these sorts of uh styles that i'm not used to that sort of like mm-hmm. overblown theatrical you know to be able to take shakespeare and put it in feudal japan and you buy it like that says something in and of itself so yeah. it's a 9 for me and that takes us to uniqueness i've seen enough japanese cinema especially from this time there were three real major players it was kurosawa It was Kenji Mizuguchi, and it was uh, Ozu is the third one. And Mizuguchi really is kind of in between Kurosawa and Ozu. Ozu was much more like delicate, poetic, uh, really long dramas about intimate family life. And Kurosawa was like, I'm going to make a samurai movie. (laughs) Then you have (laughs) Mizuguchi kind of splits the difference with like some action, some not. I think is even Ozu among- like like the artist formerly known as Ozu, like just <laughs> one name. No, I actually think that we'd really like some of the Ozu films that I've seen, but they're much more. I don't want to compare them. It's not like Terrence Malick, but he's much more interested in like very small domestic family dramas than he is hmm. in anything like big and cinematic that way. So yeah. anyway, even among his peers, I think he stands out. But then when you consider him in the context of world cinema and the directors we've seen, I think I am going to give him a 10 here. Like we talked about how seven samurai has been ripped off for 70 years now mm-hmm. and it finds its origin with this guy. Yeah, I I'm pretty much with you. I'll give him a nine and a half on uniqueness. I, I think that he's a fascinatingly accessible director in mm-hmm. the world of foreign film. And yet like, his films have meaning to a Japanese context. Mm -hmm. Like you can come at it from, you know, an American viewpoint and have something to learn. And yet, man, oh man, like he speaks, it seems like he speaks to the Japanese culture of the time in a very unique way. All right, Brad. So I'm coming out to a 44.5 out of 50 on Kurosawa. Where are you coming out to? Yeah. So I am also coming out to a 44.5 out of 50. Brad, the most surprising thing here is that Kurosawa has now taken the crown as our highest rated director of the season. And you can't pin it all on me, man, because we came out to the exact same score here. But he is coming out a half point higher than Christopher Nolan did at an average of a 44 out of 50. So, Mm. you know, even though we had our qualms with Kurosawa's films, it seems like his craft and his technique is kind of undeniable. Yeah, I was going to say our our scoring definitely leans towards craft mm-hmm. more than just like enjoyment. 
And so this, the cinematography especially, like, he just, I think the two things that stand out to me are that there's always something moving on screen, whether it's the actors or not. And I don't think I've ever seen somebody use human crowds the way Kurosawa mm-hmm. does. Yeah. I think that's what really stood out to me about the cinematography. And I don't, I don't think I would even put that in performances. Like, the, the crowds of people he uses almost feel like a part of the scenery more than people acting. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's, that's why I would place that in cinematography. Like, he, yeah, he just has a talent that you don't see in a lot of other mo- uh, directors. Brad, when I look at your scores for the five films that we did from Kurosawa, this is how they rank from high to low <laughs> on your score. Ah. So Ikiru would be number one. Seven Samurai is two. High and low is three. Then Ron and then Rashomon. Is that how you would rank these if you had to just do it off the top of your head? Akiru, high and low. It was Akiru, seven, seven Samurai, high oh. and low, Ron Rashomon. Ron Rashomon. I would definitely put Rashman last. <laughs> Rashman. Uh, yeah, I think I would go in that order. Mm-hmm. I think if I was recommending these films for someone to watch, I think I might recommend high and low first. Ooh, I think it's, okay. I think it's the most accessible of the five. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was recommending it to a movie nerd, I would say Akiru a hundred percent. Like if, if you if you consider yourself a cinephile at all, you need to go watch Akiru. Yeah. Brad, when it comes to like, you're going to Barnes and Noble for the Criterion sale <laughs> and I know you've already picked up seven <laughs> samurai, which, yes. which of these is like, this meets the criteria for a movie that I want to own. Akiru. That's the yeah. only one now. Yeah, yeah, Akiru, would I get high and low? No. Well, mm, I would think <laughs> about high and low. But I yeah, Akiru would be the only one that's like a a guaranteed. Honestly, I've been thinking about decorating my basement lately, Bob. Mm-hmm. I I know that you knew that this is where the podcast was episode was going today. I kind of want to start getting movie posters. Yeah, dude. And it started because I saw like somebody did like kind of a minimalist Akiru poster where the background, it's really faint, but it's just files of paper like that you see in their offices. And then you just have him on a swing and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I want that. <laughs> and it, it led me down a rabbit hole of like, what are movies I gave 10 out of 10 that yeah. have minimalist movie posters? And it, it was a whole thing. I love that I am getting you into this sort of nerdy, not just nerdy, but like, uh, I don't know. What's the word, man? Like making yourself a man cave that the entire Mm -hmm. space is built around. How does it accentuate my minimalist poster? I love this. I love this for you, man. All right. Last note on Kurosawa. We are two thirds of the way through our season and Ikiru is our highest rated film of the season. At a 9.5 on average. We have three movies tied for a 9.25. But we finally have a clear champion to this point, And it is Akiru. So if we can recommend one thing out of this mm-hmm. five-week series, it is go watch Akiru. Tell us what yes. you think of it. Yeah, 100%. All right, man. We've got three whiskeys to drink from World Whiskey Society. What do you say we dive into those? Let's get to it. 
right. So as we said, we are checking out three whiskeys today from the World Whiskey Society. Before we even dive in, Brad, I got to say thank you to these folks, because like we mentioned earlier, we have some super premium whiskeys sitting on our shelves now just because they felt like sending it to us. Yeah, I mean, th these bottles are some of the coolest I've ever seen. Like the, the first whiskey we're going to drink here, the Go Along whiskey out of China. It might be the coolest bottle I've ever seen, Bob. It's really, really cool. And just as a reminder, the World Whiskey Society is a U.S.-based society. It was founded in 2020, and even on their website, it says they comprise an ultra-premium collection of rare expressions of whiskey. So they're just uh, they're out here putting out these whiskeys that are made to be pricey, but it's because they are ultra-rare. And the first one that we're trying today, as Brad said, is from... It's called Go Along Chinese Single Malt Whiskey. This is a five-year-aged single malt from China made out of Australian malted barley. I am really fascinated by this, Brad. It's the first Chinese whiskey we've ever had on the podcast. But also, like, in essence, the first Australian whiskey we've had on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, right? And like, Australia is becoming, like, legit one of the major players in world whiskey. So I'm excited man. to see, you know... When we try this being aged in ex bourbon barrels in China, will it taste different than when we actually get into Australian whiskey someday? Who knows? Yeah, it's a fascinating journey this, uh, at the very least. All right, Brad, let's go ahead and dive in. This is an 80 proof whiskey. Like I said, five years old, totally made of barley. What are you picking up on the nose here? Yeah, this one, I get like some some toffee. There is some cherry. Uh, I got like, like almost the smell of an apple orchard, mm -hmm. not, not just like an apple, but like, I don't know, that kind of like sickly sweet smell of an apple orchard where yep. some of the apples are rotting a tiny bit and mm -hmm. some of them are super fresh and I don't know, it's a really pleasant fall smell. Uh, and then I, it almost just smelled like fresh firewood, like that hasn't gone into the fire yet, like just fresh chopped wood. I, this is like a really interesting nose here, Bob. I am fascinated by this entire tasting experience. I just took a sip. On their website, they mentioned the first thing they say is toffee apples. So I, I know exactly where you're coming from, Brad, because I'm getting that as well. It does remind me a little bit of those like artificial caramel apple pops, like the apple mm. scent and flavor is a little bit like green apple candy. But then there's like so much vanilla. That it threw me off. It's not quite like toffee apple to me. It's like vanilla extract and apple to me. Yeah. When I go to take a sip, it's really pleasant and the mouthfeel is really, really creamy. When you go to swallow, all of a sudden the spices come out and it's a lot of baking spice. I get nutmeg on this and a lot of black pepper. My tongue got really tingly. Um, I'm surprised at how like thick and viscous this was for 80 proof. But I will say like once I went to swallow, there wasn't a ton left around. And I'm, I'm talking about their tasting notes on the website because on their own website, they say uh, the flavors don't leave much of an impression and there's a finish of vanilla and sweet oak that's barely there. And honestly, I don't know <laughs> if I could say it any better than them. Yeah, I, for me, the, the palate became very floral, like, like almost like an essence of rose. Um, there was some like green tomato feel. It got a, a little bit vegetal mm -hmm. at the end. Um, but you're right in saying that the finish falls off a lot from where the palate and nose was. 
overall, Bob, I, I think that this is like a 37, 38 out of 50 kind of whiskey. It's really interesting. I Like, I've not had many whiskeys like it. No. And like, creamy is not usually a word I use to describe like low proof malt whiskeys either. So I'm really fascinated at the mouthfeel they were able to achieve here. But I will temper that a little bit with their own words, which are the notes get kind of subtle at the end in a way that's like, <laughs> oh, I kind of forgot that I drank that. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100 percent. Next, we are moving on to the cognac bourbon. Mm. Now, the cognac bourbon is a one of 600 bottles. It's like this is a limited edition 600 bottle run. They are bringing a American straight bourbon whiskey finished in barrels that previously held Grand Champagne XO cognac bottles. Champagne. Or, or Come on, man. Champagne. Grand I, Champagne. I apologize. <laughs> this is a 10-year so, yeah. bourbon too, Brad, and it is bottled at barrel proof. So I think we're looking at, let me see what the proof point says for me. We're talking 117 proof on this bottle of whiskey. I am very excited about this, Brad, because I don't know that we've ever had a cognac finished bourbon. We've had apple brandy, but never cognac. And on the nose, it's very floral and very dusty. And I turned my bottle around and it has the mash bill on here. This is a weeded mash bill. It's like 45% wheat in this thing. So it's 51% corn, 45% wheat. I'm really interested that they did this with a weeded mash bill. I wouldn't think that you would, I thought, I would think that you'd want to do this with like a high rye mash bill, uh, but, yeah. they, but they sure didn't. And it's giving a really unique nose that I'm kind of struggling to find notes for. Like, what are you picking up here? Yeah, it, it almost reminds me of like, almost like a, a really cheap, Almost like a maraschino cherry, mm, but okay. but not not like a fresh jar of it. Almost like a maraschino cherry extract. Yeah, it does it, with a little more like Christmassy baking spice. Like there's a little bit of sure. like a, like a luxardo or like a brandied cherry, but there is something like high fructose corn syrup to it that <laughs> that I don't normally get on like my good cocktail cherries. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's an interesting nose. I will say. For me, it came across very ethanol-y, which I, I don't normally find with super high-end whiskey, but I, I had a hard time getting past the ethanol on this. Mm. Brad, are you a drinker of brandies and cognac? I have drank brandy maybe two or three times. I've never drank cognac. I'm really struggling with the palate on this one. Not that it's bad, but it's in that really interesting phase. And you were talking earlier about like when you're at an orchard and like there's overripe apples. Yes. Yep. The other day I was making a banana pudding because we needed to get rid of some bananas. And there were a couple that were overripe. And you eat an overripe banana and it's like your body can't decide if it's almost sour or if it's so sweet that it kind of tastes sour. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, yes, yes, yes. I'm yes. almost getting that on this it with grape because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously it's made from grapes. It's like a very sweet red wine. But it's so sweet that it's almost dry. And I don't, I don't know how to explain it other than to say I can't tell if it is like off the charts sweet or off the charts not sweet. Yeah. No, I, this one is interesting. And, and I will say it's interesting in a not bad but not necessarily good way. It's interesting oh, in a way that like we've had 500 whiskeys on this podcast and 
nothing has tasted like this. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, will I say, don't like, know what to do with it. There's nothing unpalatable about it. And it's one of those ones where it's like, okay, maybe this is a $150 bottle of whiskey. And I'm kind of okay with that because the the guy in me that is sick of the same crap coming out and wants to see experimentation is like, this is what you asked for, dude. Like, this is yeah. a super interesting experiment in whiskey making. I'm here for it. I think it's like, I don't know that I will ever that it will ever be top of mind for me on like a Tuesday night when I'm like, what am I in the mood for? But I will say that every single time I open this bottle from here until it's gone, I will have a singularly enjoyably unique experience ahead of me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 100%. This is a, a really fascinating whiskey. I don't know if the, the, the profile completely works for me, but, but it is very unique. All right, and that takes us to the straight bourbon whiskey that is finished in Oloroso sherry casks. This is not even remotely close to being the first Oloroso sherry finish we've had on this podcast, Brad. But it is unique in a couple different ways. Number one, it's a six-year-old bourbon that is bottled at 115.6 something proof. And when I look at the back, not only is it bourbon, the mash bill on this bourbon is 99% corn and 1% barley. This is a really interesting mash bill. I'm sure that somebody out there is immediately tipped off to where this was made because I can't think of many places that are doing 99% corn mash bills. Uh, but when I took a nosing of this, Brad, I thought for sure that this was going to be another high wheat mash bill because it has that dustiness to it. Uh, and it's definitely not. It's almost all corn. And I'm interested to see how the sweetness of the corn interacts with that Oloroso sherry flavor that we're so used to seeing. Yeah, this is a, a really interesting whiskey that I think it lines up a little more with our palates than maybe the last one did, mm -hmm. Bob. That sherry finish is really giving this a little bit of a scotchy, like a mm -hmm. blended scotch nose. Mm -hmm. It has the yes. dustiness of a bourbon and, and even in particular, like the floralness of a bourbon. but like that sherry finish is just unmistakable, man. Yeah. For me, I, on the nose, I got a little bit of like orange zest. There was a little bit of banana for me. It's like kind of like this nice, bright, fruity, citrusy experience. And then in the midst of all that, I got some really nice, fresh grain notes, mm -hmm. almost like a fresh loaf of bread, but, but still a little raw, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. I took a sip of it just now, and I can immediately see why they did it with this mash bill. So if you had done this with a high rye mash bill, or even maybe a high wheat mash bill, who knows? I think that it would have tipped way too bitter, because I took a sip, and it seemed more like a 50-50 split between the corn and the barley. The sherry, I'm so used to sherry complementing scotch and single malt and all barley mash bills that my mind is already looking for that grain to go along with the sherry. And I think you need the sweetness of the corn to balance that out. If this had been any other mash bill of bourbon, I don't think it would have worked at all. And I think that like the extent to which it does work is almost entirely due to the fact that they used a 99 to one mash bill. Yeah, I like you said, fascinating mash bill. I, I think that it works really well with the sherry finish. You know, on the palate, I'm getting like cream soda and raspberry and and some black pepper. It, it gets a little oaky at the end. The grapes come through more strongly. 
it, it gets spicy. Bob, th- this one I think is the the highest quality of the three that we've had. It's certainly the most aligned with where our palates have been. I think if I was going to pick my favorite one, though, I would probably go with that cognac finish. It was the most unique. Like, and and it's not to be unfair to this one. This is the least unique one of the three that we tried, Brad. I think this is probably my favorite one, just from a pure flavor standpoint. I think I'd go with that go along. Mm. I, I think that that one was really fascinating in its in its profile. So if I had to pick one, I would pick that one. But I, I'm with you on the cognac. It, it's an interesting experience. I have to say, after now trying these three ultra premium whiskeys, I appreciate that the World Whiskey Society is not just sourcing rare whiskey and then putting it in a fancy bottle and selling it at a huge markup. Like, I like that they're actually finishing it in other things that you wouldn't necessarily think to do so that it's yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's ultra premium, but it's also something that just from the finishing perspective, you can't get this anywhere else. And I like that. If they're going to be asking for a lot of my money, I'm glad to know that it's not just because they have a celebrity attached to it or they're making you pay for putting their whiskey in a crystal bottle or something like there's actually some craft involved here. And it was a really enjoyable tasting experience. Yeah, very much so, Bob. Not something that I could say about all of my viewing experience of Kurosawa. (laughs) Can I (laughs) now that we're done, I'm going to just throw myself under the bus here. I originally lined up these three whiskeys to go with our Kurosawa episode because I mistakenly thought that the go-along whiskey was a Japanese whiskey. (laughs) And I was like, oh, we haven't done any Japanese whiskeys this whole time. I'll totally slot it in here. And then like the day before we recorded this, Brad, I went on the website and I saw that it was Chinese. And I was like, man, I had one job here. I don't know where I got this impression (laughs) that it was Japanese, but... You know? Yeah, go along does not sound like a Japanese word. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it doesn't sound like a Chinese word either. Yeah, I, I think it, the the spelling would line up much more with a Chinese word. The English approximation, I should say. Oh, man, that's funny. Well, folks, there you have it. Kurosawa is in the books, and we are turning the page to Kubrick next week. So join us on Tuesday when we kick things off with... Uh, a little known movie called The Shining, or as I see it constantly misspelled on the internet, The Shining. <laughs> have you seen The Shining before? I have not. Mm. You are in for a treat, my friend. Mm. <laughs> you sound thrilled, I'm like, man. <laughs> super pumped, Bob. This is going to be the time of my life. You know what's a horror movie that I do like? What's that? The Time of Their Lives, Abbott and Costello. I have never seen or heard of that movie before. Oh, dude. Next time we do a, uh, like, I get to pick half the season, I'm putting the time <laughs> of their lives on there. And you're you don't ever me. get to complain about the movies I pick not getting the downloads that you like again <laughs> if you put Abbott and Costello's fifth most famous movie on there. <laughs> All right, folks, join us on Tuesday for The Shining. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.